0: The second reading today is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 28. Um, As indicated, it's on page 42 of the booklet. If you don't have the booklet with you, it's on page 1088 of the Church Bibles. So starting at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, praise God. Thanks, Bron. It's lovely to see you. My name is Paula. I haven't met you. Uh, can I just uh, put a, a, a ask for help? So next Sunday morning, we have a 6 a.m. sunrise service. And if you're available to help in any way, either setting up, serving tea or coffee or some hot cross buns, please come and see me after, t- after tonight's service. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so, Father, we pray that you would shine your light brightly in this place, that you would speak to us clearly. Father, we long to be people who hear and who obey. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a quote on the screen. It says this, church is... Not something you go to, it's a family you belong to. Let me ask you, do you know that as a truth for yourself? The church isn't just a building that you come to, a place that you go to at 5.30 on a Sunday, it's actually a family. The people in this room tonight are your brothers and sisters in Christ, we're family. That quote continues, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus God's plan is much, much more encompassing. God intended for salvation to be a community-creating event. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. Church is not a building, it's not a place, it is people in relationships, and we're called to love each other. It struck me this week, the, the most repeated word in 1 Thessalonians, apart from Christ and apart from God, the most repeated word is brothers and sisters, brethren. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he says. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are family. So the people around you, they, they are your family. They're your brothers, they're your sisters. The, the older people here are like mothers and fathers. The really old people are like grandmothers and grandfathers. You've got newborn infants who are new to the faith. You've got people who are toddling in their faith. You've got your second cousins who you vaguely know, but you know that you're related. And that's what this passage is about tonight. It's about being church, being family. And this chapter in 1 Thessalonians kind of attacks our individual. You know, I go to church and I hear a sermon and I sing and I go home. No, there's no I. It's we, it's us. Because if you're here tonight as a Christian, you're part of this family. Now, I don't know what your earthly family is like. The Dale family get-togethers are a bit awkward. There's always tensions. There's always two people who are not quite talking to each other. And when you get together as a Dale family, it's not, it's not always easy. You know? Sometimes it's hard work. And that's true of a church family. It's not always easy to love each other well. Sometimes it's hard work. And Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica and we've called this series Dearly Loved because the Thessalonians were dearly loved by God and so are you. And the Thessalonians were called to dearly love each other and so are we. And Paul wraps up his letter by reminding this church what it means to be family. Family. In all our Bibles, you've got this awful heading that says final instructions. Cross it out. This is not what it's about. It's not a, a list of random last-minute thoughts. Paul finishes his letter by teaching you and I what it means to be church, to be family. And I'll start off with the, the first one. This is quite awkward for me to preach on. He begins by saying, love your leaders well. Love your leaders well. Paul presumes there will be people in church, men and women, who have been appointed with a special responsibility, a kind of authority if you want. We call them leaders. And Paul says, honor them, love them, acknowledge them. You see that in verse 12? Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, the word for ask is a, a request from a friend, a more intimate, personal request. I'm just asking you to Acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. When Paul talks about the leaders in church, he says, Acknowledge them, verse 12, and hold them in high regard because of their work. Acknowledge them, recognize them as being appointed by God. Recognize them as being people who have been asked to to lead you and to care for you, and then hold them in the highest regard. Literally, esteem them very highly in love, in action. What does that mean? It means this don't take your leaders for granted. I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about James and Ed and Sarah and Susan and Curtis and Naomi, but not just a paid staff, your your connect leaders, your youth leaders, your kids' church leaders, people who have been raised up by God and we're called to esteem them and value them. And that means that we, we refuse to gossip about leaders, we refuse to buy into the criticism Or positively, we express our gratitude and we pray for them. We talk highly about them. And we do that, verse 13, because of their work. Not because of a status or a position or a personality, but because of their hard work. It's John Stott who says that pastors and leaders are God's gift to his church. But the... The battles and the burdens are many, he says, and the encouragements are few. I find that really sad. I think he should say that pastors are God's gift to the church, but the encouragements are many, and the battles and the burdens are few. Because I want to speak personally, leading in God's church is such a joy and such a privilege. And I think church by does this well, you know. They, they do value and they do love their leaders well. Now, of course, we live in a society where it's really hard to love certain leaders. You know, many so-called pastors in church are, are not known for their great preaching, but for their scandals, And they're not known for their pastoral cares, but they're they're known for their sexual misconduct. And they're not known for their godly wisdom, but for bullying and manipulation. And we're not called to love those kind of people. We don't just love a leader because they've got a title. Just because someone wears a dog collar or is called reverend or has been to Bible college for three years doesn't mean they are automatically respected. Because Paul defines the kind of leaders that we're called to honor. See the three things in verse 12? What three things are we looking for? Verse 12, they work hard among you. They care for you in the Lord. And they admonish you. I love those two words, among you. They work hard among the flock. They get their hands dirty. They're not separate from the flock. You know Those leaders who try and lead from afar, it just doesn't work. God expects his pastors, his leaders, to share their life and to share their gospel and to be among the people, not just over them, but among them. But they do work hard, verse 12. That word is labor, it is toil, it is sweat, it is hardship. I remember when the first someone, someone said to me, oh, How long does it take to prepare a sermon, Paul? couple of hours? I said, oh, normally it's about an hour's preparation for every minute that you preach. Really? Yep. Trying to make it as clear as possible so the people who are listening go, oh, I get it. The hours spent visiting the new people, the counselling those in need. The hours spent doing one-to-one discipleship and training. The hours spent doing emails and admin and planning services. The hours spent doing building projects and reading balance sheets for finance statements. I got home on Wednesday and Ray said to me, how was your day? I said, oh, it was a great day. It was a wonderful day. I mean, I'm emotionally drained, but it was wonderful. I met with a man this morning whose son suicided. I met with a woman whose husband left her this week. I met with another person who's really, really grappling in his faith. And I met with a a man who's just been diagnosed with a tumour. Emotionally draining, but a real privilege. a, A good pastor, a good leader will be weary in the work, but not weary of the work. And we're called to love those who, verse 12, care for you in the Lord. They shepherd you, they feed you, they nourish you, they correct you, they comfort you, they direct you in the Lord. They keep on pointing to Jesus, that great chief shepherd. And yes, verse 12, we admonish you. That word is a gentle correction, the counsel about some things to avoid. But that is biblical leadership where men or women They don't abuse their power, but they are humble, servant-hearted, Christ-loving leaders. If your leaders are doing those things, they're working hard, they're caring for your souls, they are admonishing you, then we're called to esteem them and to love them well. I want to say again, we've got extraordinary, extraordinary leaders here at church. One of the most godly, hard-working, humble, caring staff team you could ask for. Same with our Connect leaders. Same with our youth leaders. And so please think about how this week you can love them well. What can you do? What can you say that will show that you value them and esteem them? But these verses for me were also difficult verses because these were the verses, verses 12 and 13, that caused me to leave a church. I don't share that lightly, but I was in a church where I could no longer respect the leadership because what was said from the pulpit just didn't match up to the way they were living their life. And so I spent hours and weeks and months meeting with the leaders. It became the point where I could not sit in that church any longer. And that's the right thing to do. If you can no longer esteem and respect your leaders, it's not right to stay. And of course, these verses do apply to those of who are leaders. We are called to work hard. We're called to care. We're called to admonish. We're called to be humble. We're called to be selfless servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, love your leaders well. Number two, love each other well. Remember, we're family. And I hope you know this about church. Church is so different to any other organization or institution because It's not just the professional paid people who do the ministry. We're family and so we're called to love each other and pastor each other and shepherd each other. 59 times in the New Testament it says, One another be devoted to one another, teach one another, pray for one another, care for one another's burdens, love one another, serve one another, respect one another, forgive one another, that mutual responsibility to care for each other's souls. And the way that we relate as church needs to reflect the character of God, doesn't it? See that in verse 13, live in peace with each other. Live in peace with your leaders, live in peace with each other. Because our God is not a God of division. He's not a God of fighting and factions and envy and hatred and discontent. He's a God of peace. And so the way that we relate as family needs to reflect the God that we claim to worship. But listen very carefully. Church is made up of different people. With different battles and different temptations and different journeys and different personalities. And so one size does not fit all. You love each other differently depending on where people are at. And that's what verses 14 and 15 are all about. He says, we urge you, we plead with you, brothers and sisters, we are family. So in your family, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. What Paul is saying here is that there are are some people in God's church who are unruly, they are disruptive, they are undisciplined. It's a bit like on Anzac Day on a parade and you've got all all the people uh, marching in time and you've got this unruly or disruptive marcher who's out of time and just causing everyone to stumble. It's a bit like a teacher. If you've ever ever been in in a classroom and you've got that unruly, that undisciplined, disruptive student. And if you don't bring them back in, before long the whole class is disrupted. Same in church. Part of our corporate responsibility is to warn those people in church who are being divisive and who are being idle, verse 14. Warn those people in church who just come and take and never give. It's the right thing to do to warn them lovingly. But here's the thing, and I think we need to hear this in Sydney, especially Sydney Anglican churches. Not everybody needs to be warned. Not everyone needs the stick. Many people just need to be encouraged. Many people need to be comforted. Many people need to be helped and loved. It really saddens me how many people have just been whacked over the head with a warning when what they really needed was someone to sit with them and cry with them and comfort them and help them and spur them on. He says in verse 14, encourage the disheartened, those brothers and sisters amongst you, and you're doing it tough, and you are weary, and you are sad, and life is wearing you down. And you're trying to live for Jesus, but you're, you're struggling. And if that's you here tonight, you don't need a stick. You don't need a warning, do you? You need someone to sit with you and say, good on with you for being at church tonight. How can I care for you? What can I do to love you and encourage you and support you? I'm going to walk alongside you and I'm going to build you up and I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to care for you. The same with helping the weak in verse 14. There are people here tonight who are spiritually weak. You are struggling to live a godly life. You are struggling to keep on trusting in God. And again, you do not need a warning you need someone who will sit with you and cry with you and pray with you and remind you of God's grace and say, hold on to Jesus because he's hold on to you. There's a lady in our church who is going so well in the Lord and she is just thriving in her faith. But that wasn't the case six years ago. Not at this service, at our later service. She used to come every single week and she used to do the dash. The first person to leave every week. And sadly, some people just berated her without sitting down with her and finding out why it was that she was doing the dash every week. If they bothered to sit and listen to her, they'd have found out that the fact she was in church at all is a blessing and a miracle. But somebody from this church picked up the phone and said, let's do a coffee, and they sat and they listened and they loved And they prayed, and they encouraged, and she's now here every week thriving in her faith. I made a couple of phone calls this week to people who haven't been at church for a few weeks, just to see, are they okay? How are they going in their faith? And one of the most encouraging things was that, on both of those occasions, they said to me, ah, lots of people in church have phoned me or texted me this week to see how I'm going. Isn't that great? That we're loving each other well like that. And then he adds in verse 14 be patient with everyone. This is the harvest, isn't it? Be patient with people. Because people can be difficult and people can be demanding and people will let you down, but we're called to be patient. Here's what I've learned in ministry. People rarely change according to my time frame. God changes people in his timing, in his way. And I'm just called to be patient and to be faithful. So be patient with that person who is not being transformed at the rate that you expect him to. Be patient with the person who is is really, really frustrating. Be patient with him. Why? Because God has been patient with you, hasn't he? Think about that. God has been so patient with each one of us, hasn't he? He's so patient when we keep on failing him. He's slow to anger and we're called to be like our God. And please, if someone has hurt you here at church by the bridge, if someone has wronged you or treated you badly, please do verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Please don't seek revenge. Please don't seek retaliation. It never, ever works. Here's what happens when you... Seek revenge or seek retaliation. The only person who gets hurt is you. Because you hold on to the grudge and you hold on to the hurts and you play the victim card. And we're called to forgive. Just as in Christ God has forgiven you. And the way that you do that is actually going the extra mile. You actually go abundant grace. Verse 15, you always strive to do what is good. Even to those who have really, really hurt you. The kind word, the kind letter, praying for them, going up to them at a service and deliberately talking to them even when they've hurt you. And again, I want to say that 530 Church is a great model of this. I think we do this well. We do the warning well. We do the encouraging well. We do the helping well. We do the not retaliating well. And we do the loving well. So love your leaders well, love each other well, and then lastly, love God well. That's why we're here, isn't it? The reason that we're here and not at home watching Married at First Sight is because we want to know God better. We actually want to know God better and want to adore Him more and grow in our love for God. And it starts with your attitude towards God in verse 16. Verse 16. Rachel and I have got these verses hanging on our wall at home. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you are brothers in Christ, your attitude is one of joyfulness and prayerfulness and thankfulness. He says rejoice always. He doesn't say be happy always. He says that deep-seated Deep-seated trust and contentment and joy in Jesus, in the sad times, in the grief time, in the pain. That's the mark that you're in Christ. And you pray continually. You're always talking to God. You're showing your dependence on your Lord. Yesterday morning, between the hours of 10 and 10.30, uh, Elijah, my four-year-old, he asked me the same things eight times. Same question eight times. Why does he do that? He just keeps running to me as his dad, asking me the same thing again and again and again. Same with you and God, isn't it? Keep running to him for everything. It's hard to imagine a day or an hour went by when Paul wasn't praying those arrow prayers, those persistent prayers, the bold, expectant prayers. Keep praying, he says, and keep giving thanks. In every situation, not for the situation, but in the situation, express your gratitude for who God is and what he's doing. And then, this is the clincher. This is when he really twists the knife. He says, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Let me ask you a question. Did you come to church tonight expecting God to speak to you? Did you come to church tonight expecting the Spirit to be at work in you? Did you come to church tonight expecting God's Spirit to do an amazing work in our church family? Do you come listening, longing to hear God's voice? Because the reality is that God's Spirit is at work and God's Spirit is powerful and God wants to teach us and correct us and train us and encourage us. God wants to do that. But sometimes we, we quench the spirit. Sometimes we put out the spirit's fire. Sometimes we hinder God's work in our church. Now how do you do that? Is it possible that you are quenching the spirit right now? And it's possible that as I preach and God's word is going out, you're blocking your ears saying, I don't want to hear this. See, one way that we can quench the Spirit is there in verse 20. And we don't talk about this very much, do we? He says, don't quench the Spirit. they link these two verses. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. You see, you probably think about 1 Corinthians when you think about prophecy, don't you? 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he talks about tongues and talks about prophecies. And in Corinth, it seems they were obsessed with tongues and obsessed with prophecy and obsessed with all these spiritual gifts. That is not the case in Thessalonica. It's the exact opposite. They are sceptical. They're suspicious. When someone claims to have a prophecy, they reject it outright. And I think we are more like Thessalonica than we are like Corinth here in Sydney. According to Paul, there are such things as prophets, not, not big P prophets, but little P prophets. Men and women who have been given a word from God for a particular person or a particular situation, always weighed against Scripture, always for building up God's church. And sometimes God, by His Spirit, wants to teach us and correct us and encourage us, but we block our ears and we write it off. many of you probably never met Annie O'Shaughnessy. Beautiful woman of God who went to be with the Lord last year. And she remember our church, first Saturday night and then 3.30 church. And she battled so many addictions. You name it, she battled it. And whenever others was open mic, Annie would stand up. And she often had a word from the Lord one infamous occasion she stood up and she said these words, I'm paraphrasing, but she said basically, I got out of rehab this week and it's so good to be in church. I love church. I love meeting with you guys and hearing from God. It's the hardest of my week. But you know what? I get really discouraged because I come to church and I make the effort and despite all my buzz, I come to church and I come to church but most of you are not here all the time. It seems that any excuse you're not at church But God's church is important because God's church is where God's people gather and God's people gather to encourage each other. So when you don't come, I'm discouraged. And then she sat down. I was thinking, preach it, sister. (laughs) But that is a word of prophecy. Now here's the issue. God wants to speak to us and God does speak to us. Yes, through the Bible, of course through the Bible, but also through words. And we can quench the spirit. We can write off people's words. And Paul says, test them. Weigh them. Weigh it against the scriptures. Weigh it against God's word. If it's in line with God's word, hold on to it. Because it is good. It's edifying. It builds you up. If it does not align with God's word, then reject it. Verse 22. There are lots of false prophecies out there. There are lots of stupid words out there that do not align with scripture. But be discerning. And it's liberating because God speaks to us and he calls us to listen. And I do wonder how much good work, transforming work, God's Spirit longs to do in us and in our church. But we kind of block our ears and refuse to listen. So he says, Love God well, listen to him well, and then keep trusting him, verse 23. Keep trusting God. May God himself, the God of peace, not the God of factions, not the God of division, may he sanctify you. May he make you holy. May he set you apart through and through. Every part of your being is sanctified for your saviour. Your whole spirit, soul, and body may be kept blameless on that day when you see Jesus face to face. Here it is, verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful. God is faithful and God will do it. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that liberating? You are not responsible to keep your own soul. You are not responsible to, to, to become more like Jesus. God himself will do it because he's the one who is faithful. See, God will bring us home. We're his family here on earth. And one day we'll be his family for all eternity. But the work he began, he will complete and he will do it. Look at that quote again. Church is not something you go to. It's a family you belong to. And I do hope that 5.30 Church here will become your family. I do hope that you will love your leaders well. Just think of one thing you can do this week to love your leaders well. And think of one thing you can do to love somebody else here at 5.30 well. And then maybe think of one thing you can do to listen to God well this week. I'm going to give you a moment by yourself to think of how you're going to do that. Love God, love your leaders, and love others. And then I'll pray. Why don't we pray together? So why don't you grab your Holman Bibles, the Black Bibles. I'll invite the muses up. And why don't you stand and we're going to pray together verses 23 and 24 of chapter 5. It's on page 1088. And let's change the singular to the, the plural. So us and our. Let's pray this for our church family here. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely, and may our spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls us is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Amen.